Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this one is so much fun. We get to hear from Richard Jobson, who was the frontman for Scottish punk legends, The Skids. Now, here's the story of The Skids. Late 70s, he and his musical partner, Stuart Adamson, I think you guys know that name from Big Country, they come together, they form The Skids, they put out three albums, these fantastic, epic, just, you know, fighting songs that are so good, like this one, Into the Valley, and The Saints Are Coming. Eventually, Stuart leaves to go form Big Country, and Richard has done a bunch of stuff ever since. He forms his own, it's not, they're not like Big Country, but I would say they were equally as influenced by the loud, big drum sound called the Armory Show that are so good, and they only ever lasted one album. And then he also does a bunch of like spoken word albums. They're like poetry. It's really interesting stuff. He also becomes an actor, TV presenter, film critic. He's been going ever since. In fact, there's a movie out right now in the UK called Creation Stories that Richard stars in. And it's the story of Alan McGee, founder of Creation Records. I'm going to tell you more about that. If you want to see that, it's streaming through the Tribeca Film Festival. You can uh, log in there and pay for that right now if you wanted. Um, I'll tell you more about that at the end because there's interesting stuff there. Anyway, they just put out a new album called Songs from a Haunted Ballroom that are covers of songs that were big when they were first starting out in the late 70s. And there's some great ones in there like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, uh, Iggy. There's a couple of them that I think are actually better than the originals we talk about in there. There's some that you would never guess would be in this thing like Rock On and New York Groove, but they're there. Anyway, Richard is the man, and we just get into all of just the history of punk. It is so great. He's from Scotland, obviously, Dunfermline, where Jan is from, but he called me from his home in England. Where are you? I'm in England at the moment, which uh, I got, when the lockdown happened, I got stuck here and they wouldn't let me out. It's kind of quite draconian, the rules in the UK, you know, and um, although I'm a bit of a rule breaker, I decided I'm going to obey these ones. I've been busy. I've got a new album, as you've heard, yes. probably. And um, yes. uh, I finished two new books. Really? And, yeah. And, and maybe it's been great because it got me focused on stuff. Because normally I've always been a bit of a scattergun kind of guy. You know, I just do loads uh-huh. of stuff and uh-huh. and don't really care about this dilettante kind of label that I sometimes get and just get on with it. Yeah. And sometimes it works, John, and sometimes it really doesn't work. But what the hell, you know? Um, sure. Uh, so, but th- because of the lockdown, I've been very, very concentrated, probably for the first time in my life. And it's been interesting, you yeah. know, uh, just to focus on a project, see it through, get it done. And certain projects I've buried for the last 40 years, thinking I'll never do it. And I've done it now, I've finished them. <laughs> so it's been great. There's uh, no better time, right? Than, exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, how's it been for you? It's uh, it's been up and down. Um, I have a normal job, so I work a normal job, and I just do it from home, and it's not a problem at all. My wife and I got vaxxed a couple of months ago, so we've been good. We've gone on vacation. We just got back from a vacation to Hawaii, which was nice, and managed to work that out, but my dad died of COVID over the oh, holidays. Yeah. It's okay. And two other former guests of this podcast actually died of COVID, who I had become friendly with. I don't know if you knew Matthew Seligman, who was uh, in the... Uh, yeah, I know that name was, from somewhere. He was the bass player for the Soft Boys. And he oh, yeah, yeah, of course, the, yeah. 
yeah, Bowie yeah. and a bunch of others, Thomas Dolby. He was, he, he and I had become friendly through the podcast. He died mm-hmm. and another person who had been on recently died. So it's uh, both of COVID. It's, you know, yeah, my I mean, when you see was, it close, when you see it close, you realize yeah, how serious this shit is. That's it. And, it, and, it's and I think I hear recently I've been meeting a lot of people who are very skeptical about the whole thing. And mm-hmm. it makes me kind of angry. You know, I mean, yes. even uh, in the UK, there's a lot of communities who just won't take the vaccination. And yeah. now this new variant, this Indian variant, is absolutely, I mean, like it's running through those communities like wildfire now. Mm-hmm. And they're all in hospital, all these people, and they wouldn't take the vaccine because they think it's some weird conspiracy theory bullshit, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've fallen out with people about it. and and, I mean, you know, the the UK is, you know, same as the US, I guess. After Brexit, there was a big switch in people's views of who we are here. And you had the same thing in in the US, obviously, with Trump. Yep. Uh, I was a Remainer. I'm a European. I believe in the European project. And um, I hate that kind of $2 nationalism that's uh-huh. right here in the UK and happened also, of course, in in, uh, in the States. Yeah. Um, so that really split people. I mean, there's yeah. people I'll probably never speak to again who, uh, who I was kind of friendly with. And yeah. we just have nothing in common anymore. Yeah. And then COVID hit. And then some of these people who are, I would regard as being relatively intelligent people with a good point of view in life, suddenly going, I ain't taking this. This is just a, a government conspiracy control. She's going, what the fuck are you talking about? People are dying from this. Right, right. Yeah. And then I don't you get see, it either. I don't get it either. Really, yeah, it's made me just certain people now. I mean, I was in a movie recently. I don't know if you saw it, Creation Stories, the Alan McGee story. No. It's, I, it's you're in that? The guy Ooh, from love Creation, to see that. Yeah. Creation Records. It's been a big hit here in the UK. It was um, obviously it couldn't be shown in the cinema, unfortunately, uh-huh. and because COVID struck just at the time when it was going to come out. But it got a big digital release with Sky. Sky is the main kind of cinema yeah. platform here in the UK, and it was a massive hit. Um, it's the story of Van McGee from Creation Records mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the story of those, how he came about through punk rock and mm-hmm. became this maverick manager in the style of Malcolm McLaren and then discovered Primal Scream and Oasis amongst many, many others. I play his father. Really? Do you really? Yeah. Oh. So I got a phone call from uh, Danny Boyles, the producer, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the famous Transpotting. director. Everyone Welsh wrote the scripts, so there's a connection with those transporting guys. And I got a phone call from them saying, "Would you come to a meeting and have a chat about it?" I said, "Well, actually, I'm not based in the UK. So I'm based in Berlin in Germany." Mm-hmm. And they said, "Well, are you coming over?" I said, well, "I'm in the UK. This is pre-COVID, obviously. Mm-hmm. I'm in the UK on Thursday. Could you come to the Elstree Studios, which is quite a famous movie studio here in sure. England?" And um, yeah, I didn't. They wouldn't tell me what it was about. I thought they wanted one of my songs for free or something, you know, because I get a lot of requests especially for the sense of coming or working for the Yankee dollar for movies or commercials or whatever. Most of the time I say no um, because it's a really shit commercial. And But, you know, those guys, of course, I would have said yes. Anyway, I went there and they suddenly gave me a script and said, read this part. It's the father of Alan McGee. And so um, 
I read it with uh, the main guy who's going to be playing McGee. Who's playing and McGee, by the way? Brenner from Trainspotting. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Like the other one, Ewan Brenner, who plays yep. Spot in the film. He's a very good actor. And and he looks like McGee, you know, a mm-hmm. very close, similar kind of physiognomical sh- shape to his head and colour of hair yeah. and all that kind of thing. So anyway, I did the reading. It didn't go very well. I wasn't very good. I was a bit nervous because I wasn't expecting to be doing this. And then they said, go down and meet the guys because you've got to wear a wig because you're playing the old guy and the younger guy. And and see what you like with the wig on. We'll have another go because the American producers are, are in L.A. and they want to see this because they're the money people and they want to see your audition because it's a big part in the film. This. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> so I went down and these guys were putting this wig on me and it was and then they said we've got to put these kind of fake tattoos on you mm. and I went well I don't have any tattoos and I said well, well what are they and it's a, a symbol of a man on a white horse and I went holy shit you ain't putting that and the other one was a red hand with a number 1690 these two things are I mean in, in our culture in uh-huh. Scotland and Northern Ireland this is like like serious shit. This is yeah. association with a militant Protestant organizations. Right. And um, I'm from a Catholic background. And uh-huh. I just said, no fucking way am I putting them on my <laughs> arm, right? So there's these two Italian guys, and they're like, hey, you're an actor. You gotta do what we tell right. you. You can stick this fucking up your ass. I ain't doing this. Right. So I went back up to the uh to put to put it on film for the American producers. And of course I was like firing brimstone mm-hmm. because the idea of putting these v- disgusting kind of paramilitary things sure. on my arm. No fucking way, you know? And um, so I went upstairs and they could tell that I was in, you know, and I've got a bit of a temper on me and I'm a big guy. So I walked in the room. I said, come on, let's get this done. I've got a plenty of catch. Got to get back to the airport. So let's get going. They're all like, whoa. Right. You know, talks to us like that. And I was going, I don't right. give a shit. Just do it. And I did it. And of course, I did it as this really fierce guy who's pretty uh-huh. angry. That's who he should have been. Yeah. Because my earlier, you know, it was I was telling him as this kind of quite nice guy, and sure. I came out and yeah, there you go. That's the guy. <laughs> and so we sent it to the states immediately, and uh-huh. um, the, the money people there. By the time I got to the airport in in uh, England, they said. Come back, come back. You've got the par. Uh-huh. Don't get on that plane. Come back. And I said, what? We start filming tomorrow. No way. Yeah, because they obviously had somebody else had fallen through. Right. And, um, yeah, I got the par. And, um, yeah, I even, I've even had good reviews. Oh, <laughs> good for you. I've yeah, wondered, so I don't think that show has hit over here. If it, Maybe it's on streaming know. services. No, I mean, I've seen this. Certainly he's been getting a... Great response. Just been released this week in Australia. Believe it or not, released this week in Russia. Really? Yeah, I mean, I know. Um, <laughs> but I presume it's going to be released in... Oh, I hope so. Yeah, I, I love... It's... I'm a big McGee fan and creation music and all that kind of... I, yeah. I love well, you'll love the film. You'll love the Good. film because it's... It's um, it's a kind of classic rock and roll rise and fall yeah. story. Ooh, I becomes... love it. I've watched a lot of... I've watched a, DV, a, a, a documentary on... Alan and the creation and primal screams in there. Some of the accents were pretty thick, but this was about a yeah. year or two ago. So speaking of, I've been doing, we've been doing this, this uh, podcast for six years now. And um, I, it's been so cool. Cause I've gotten to speak with some of my favorite musicians like you. 
but my producing partner, see, I do all the interviews and line up all the guests. And then my partner does all the production and everything. And he lives in Dunfermline. No way. Yeah. In Fife. No way. In fact, he told, I wanted to, I asked him specifically where he lived so that I could mention it to you. He says, uh, I'm right at the Western edge of Dunfermline on the Sterling road out past miles mark. If you know yeah, where that is. Of course. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yeah. yeah. I said, man, tell him that, um, it wouldn't mean nothing to you, but tell him that I used to live in Salon, you okay. know, like saline, you would pronounce it in America. Right. But okay. in Scottish, it's Saline. Okay. Um, and Saline, S-A-A-L-I-N-E. But yeah, wow. So what the hell yeah. is he Scottish or is he American? He's Scottish. Yeah. Oh, I see. I used but... to live in Cambridge, England. I moved. Uh, I moved to Cambridge in '91, right after I graduated from high school, uh-huh. and uh, I wasn't there too long, less than a year. But our families became friends, and uh-huh. we just always stayed in touch. And uh, right. when great. I needed help, technical help, putting this thing together, I thought, who do I know that likes music but is a real tech guy and would and would get uh-huh. off on that and he was the guy so anyway oh, and he in fact about three years ago i went out there to visit them and uh go to a concert at the hydro and we drove around he was showing me all the big country stuff there in town like uh, balmoral and the castle and there's uh-huh. that little section of the of the library that has like i think the skin maybe you're in there too some like Guitar, Stuart's guitars, and I think some yeah, skits. Yeah, that's right. Museum there. there, yes, a new museum. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. they have one of my. I make these light installations, and I think they've got one of the, my my light installations in there. That's and right. I do them in my handwriting. It's got scared to dance. Yes. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's pretty good little um, that library next door is where I wrote all the words to all of my songs. Are you every serious? Single, every single song that I wrote when I still lived in. Scotland, uh-huh. Into the Valley, Saints of Coming, Yankee Dollar, Animation, you name it, I wrote them in that library. No way. Um, yeah, I mean, I was one of five boys and we lived in a very small house. Uh-huh. And uh, my mother worked, she worked in the docks nearby. My father was a, a coal miner, so, you uh-huh. know, classic blue-collar working-class exactly. family. And um, so there was no space to sit and write. So I used to go there after school. And sit and like doodle, and all those songs were written in that library. It's amazing wow. to think back, wow. yeah, in that space. Wow. And you know what else is interesting? Um, when I was getting ready to talk to you, I said, I said, what should I? What are are there any you know specific things to Fife and Dunfermline that I should ask? And he said, um, he said, ask him if he. <laughs> He didn't know about he doesn't he didn't know what the theme of the new album was. He said, "Ask him if they ever played the Kinema Ballroom." Huh. And I was like, "Well, uh, the new album happens to be like a love letter to the Kinema Ballroom." And, exactly. Uh, so uh, That's the hilarious. would be yes, yes. So yeah. t- now, I have I don't mean to just sound like I'm blowing smoke, but I absolutely love this new album. And there are actually a couple of songs on here that I dare say are better than the original. Um, oh, don't say that. I mean, they're, well, they're all they're all done, they're all done with love and um, yeah. a lot of passion, actually. Even a little bit of anger in there still. Yes. But but you know, the originals are. It's just that we love those songs, you know. So yes, there was a list of songs, and I I you know the list was just insane, and I went let's let's talk about what motivated us when we were young and 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 that ballroom is so inherently important to us as a 
space that became our space, as I said in the Swede notes, and also it captured the local kind of insanity of the times, you know, the gangs and the violence and the stupidity. And so we started to define it through the, that space, you know, and that space yeah. was, you know, it was our CBGBs, it was our mud club, it was our, you know, um, you know, like in Glasgow, they have the place called the Barrowlands, which is an iconic yeah. gig. This is our Barrowlands, because we are the people that encourage the clash to come. We we really? got all these groups to come there because they didn't want to come to Dunfermline. They're like, where the hell is that? And more interesting um, bands who are more musical played another venue there called the Carnegie Hall, which uh-huh. is named after Andrew Carnegie, who's actually from Dunfermline, as you know. Right. And, uh, you know, but not bands that we liked, you know, bands like, I don't know, ELO or Yes or something. They would play there, but they would never play the kinema. And it was a perfect venue for punk bands, you know I mean? For us, the night The Clash played there was the moment our life, we, we asked them to come and they came. Yes. And we supported them, you know, with uh, was Richard like, Helen and Voidoids, oh. who's the main support. Uh, oh, yeah, what Richard, a deal. I love Yeah, it was amazing. You. Richard... I mean, I love television and I really loved Richard Hell, but he was uh-huh. such an asshole. Was he? <laughs> oh, God, he was like just the worst. I met him years later in Los Angeles and we were chatting there and he goes, we've met before, right? You and I. And I said, yeah. He said, where do we meet? So we met on the Clash tour. He went, oh, man, that's gone back a long time. I said, no, no, we, we played, you played Dunfermline. I said, yeah, I remember. We played them this like weird little town, and it was just. And I said, no one will be here. And I said, it sold out in five minutes. The show. And I said, yeah. So did you come backstage after? I said, no, we were the first on. <laughs> and and we asked you to move your drum kit, and you told me to fuck off. And I said, <laughs> you want to fucking have a scrap? I'm not scared of you, man. I'll fucking fight you. And he went, you're that little shit. I'm like, oh. yeah. That's me. I'm that little shit. It was so funny. He remembered. So it was crazy times, you know, and and uh, we were lucky in Scotland because there, there weren't really many bands. So we were one of the first bands. And even though we're not from a big city, we're from, you know, you've seen it. It's kind of very rural and, uh-huh. and it's a bit of a backwater, some people think. But we managed to get the support of all the groups that came. So... Um, we got Buzzcocks, The Clash, The Banshees. You know, we were always the opening act. Wow. And it was and the Sex Pistols. We, you know, so these people became our friends because, you know, punk wasn't competitive. You know, it was anti-competitive. So it was, there was much more of a, without, you know, overly sentimentalising it, it was much more of a camaraderie you had with the other bands. It wasn't like about who's better. I mean, Joe Strummer was just a great guy and... Mm-hmm. Uh, he remained my friend until the day he died, and um, Mick is still my friend. I was never so right. friendly with Paul. Hugh Cornwall, for example, with The Stranglers, I've just written two new songs for the new Skids album with Hugh Cornwall, really? and they're really good. Good. Really good. Yeah. Oh, um, yes. Uh, so Hugh's still my friend. Steve Severin, you know, we shared an apartment together for maybe six years. So it was very close. I mean, even people, and funny, going back now, people ask me about, Sid Vicious, for example, you know, was he a real asshole? Sid, with me, was a really nice guy because yeah. he was young and he understood I was. I mean, I was 16 when I met these guys and 
and a crazy little guy from nowhere and you're hanging out with these people. And, and he kind of got that. I was just a kid and he liked it. Yeah. You know, and I think Joe Strummer was like that with me too. He just, yeah. I was just a little kid, but I was almost more of a punk than they were because mm-hmm. of where I'd come from and yeah. lack of opportunity and stuff. And these were big city people, you know, they were yeah. from London and, yeah. you know, uh, so they, I think they got that, you know, and so, a lot of them, the ones who are still alive, are still my friends today. Good. You know, I mean, that's wild. And that's, it's really nice. So that's that. As I say, that camaraderie was a big deal, and it was never competitive. Like, like that thing with creation stories. All those bands hated each other. Uh-huh. You know, like um, Blur, really? Racist. They really hated each other. Yeah, I didn't know like that. Pulp. Everyone seems to hate Jarvis Cocker. They think he's like <laughs> some bourgeois asshole, which he kind of is. Um, but the punk era didn't do that. I think as it as it evolved into the next period, when bands became a little bit more creative and arty, maybe there was definitely a division coming through that. But the in, initial periods, and we were there right at the beginning. Remember, although we're regarded as a new wave band, we were at part of the scene at the very beginning. Um, some people say that Stuart Adamson and I were the first two punks in Scotland so nobody even looked oh. like a punk in those days but we already looked that way because yeah. we used to make our own clothes I had a pair of uh, these kind of weird trousers and pointy shoes and uh, I used to dye my hair black with a white streak down the middle Ooh. and then punk rock happened Wow. Do you understand what I mean? We were yes. already doing that stuff. So you're already kind of doing it first. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of that came through my older brother Francis, who was this um crazy, crazy guy. Uh he plays saxophone, he was pretty mad, joined the Hare Krishna movement. Ooh. But when I was a little boy, he introduced me to I mean, most of the people I knew, they were listening to Donny Osmond or David Cassidy or the Bay City Rollers. I mean, my brother was playing Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa and That'll The Great Dead and yeah. Leonard Cohen and Iggy Pop and David Bowie and, you know, even later a little bit of the early Roxy music. So you were listening to stuff that was kind of avant-garde almost, you know, like I still remember Trout Mass Replica to this day, you know, sitting there as a little guy listening to Fast Did you ever figure it out? Because I no. still can't figure that album out. Oh, of course not. <laughs> Fast and Bulbas. You're like, it's kind of poetry, but like right. Dada or something, you know? Right. But so so a combination of that. And then and I remember he gave me a, a copy of an MC5 kicking out of jams and yes. uh, Raw Power, obviously. Uh-huh. And Raw Power just, I love MC5, obviously, and and... But raw power just did it, you know. It just yeah. there's something about that that really connected with me. And I remember actually we were still very young when Iggy played in Scotland, and we went along to the gig, and and he came into this bar, and we were sitting there. We were underage in the UK; you need to be a certain age to drink alcohol, and uh-huh. we were hiding in the corner. And Iggy walked into the bar, and he went, "Really? Who are you motherfuckers coming to see me tonight?" And we were like. <laughs> Yes, yes, we are, like Mr. Pop. Yes, we are. He's like, looking great. Yeah. And he had this really beautiful girl. And said, look at Of course her. he did. You look after her. And we were like, oh, my God. It's like super sexy girl sitting with these little spotty, ugly guys. It was so great. We had just such an amazing time. But I think Iggy was the guy that made me think about you don't have to be a great singer to be a great front man, uh, you know, and, uh. 
and yeah. he's the him and Alex Harvey are the two greatest frontmen mm. I've ever seen. And mm. Alex had this Glaswegian tough, you know, he was just like a comic book caricature the way he dressed, and yeah, he was like something out of a graphic novel. And so was Iggy, really. Iggy was like a car- cartoon character, and they both. Both of them, neither of them could sing, I don't think, but both of them were the most brilliant front men. Yes, it's the whole package. Yeah, so when Stuart Adamson decided to start a band, you know, I remember they had me along for an audition and with a bunch of other guys, and all these other guys had, like, Brian Ferry haircuts (laughs) and were all dressed, like, in tuxedos and shit. What the fuck is this? These guys. So I said to them, listen, man, we were waiting outside this uh, venue and to go in and do the rehearsal. I said, you guys need to go home. And he went, why is that? Because you're fucking assholes. <laughs> so, so when they actually opened the doors to for the audition, I was the only guy there. Really? The other guy, yeah, because I said, uh, you know, I'm going to like get yeah. stuck into you, as we say in Scotland. Right. So, uh, so I did, um, uh, my audition um, was uh, Rob Power and said, and yeah, I was terrible, absolutely yeah. terrible, absolutely terrible. And the best player of Bill Simpson said, This guy can sing and he uh-huh. can dance. And Stuart went, Perfect. We've got a guy. <laughs> so I got a gig. And um, you know, I never pretended to be a singer and still don't, but those songs in this new album, I guess, is they're just songs that you know they just yeah. got into your system. Yeah, and they're not they're part of your story. Some of them are quite odd choices. I yes. And I specifically wanted to ask you about some of these because I want people to hear them and I want to hear the story behind them. And when I mentioned earlier about some of them actually being an improvement, I love magazine, but your version of the light uh, comes out of me. Pours out of me, yeah. Or pours out of, yeah, the light pours out of me. I like that one even, that version even better. I, I know that you're cringing, but I really do. So tell me why that, tell me the story behind that song in particular. Um, well, uh, punk, you know, was defined by by copying a lot of the energy that came out of, obviously, Detroit and New York with those amazing bands from MC5 to AV all the way on to the Ramones, of course, New York Dolls, etc. And a lot of the the bands copied that sound in the UK 
and did something a little bit more political with it, a little bit more aggressive and nihilistic in some cases. But the next wave of bands were the ones who suddenly took all that energy and did something really remarkable with it. Yes. And the first band to do that was Magazine. Yeah. And they were led by Howard DeVoto, who was formerly in the Buzzcocks. Yeah. And he left the Buzzcocks to do his own thing. And Magazine's first album, Real Life, was just a complete game changer for all of us. So, I remember yeah. the first night I heard that album, I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And then we had started playing by that time, the band, and we were down to support them in two weeks after that album came out. And we played that album every day. I remember being at the soundcheck and watched John McGeer, the great guitarist, yeah. do that riff. And da -na 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 -na. and it just suddenly went, oh, my God, this is hypnotic. Yes. And it was, it, it was still kind of punk in a way, but it had this more sophisticated edge to it. And it's a song that really emboldened us. And the first night I heard it was in the Kinema Ballroom on our Thursday night, which was punk night. And the guy who played the music just played it. He just got it and he played it. And we were all like, oh, wow. And we all felt useless because <laughs> this is, we were evolving our sound. And it just leapt forward, you know, yes. in a huge way. And John McGeer would go on to become one of my dearest friends. Mm -hmm. And I started a band with him after the skits called about Armory Show. In a bit. Yeah, yes. and, and so, you know, he he was a troubled man, but he was as close to spectacular as anything that came out of the punk era. Mm. And, and, and and a great human being, you know. Really? Good. Seriously damaged guy and indulgent. And I'm angry about that because he's gone. But, yeah. but nonetheless, he did things that none of us could even have imagined doing. And he made it... <laughs> easier for us to do that so but i also love the lyrics you know i mean yeah. howard devoto was using dostoevsky and yeah. references that the rest of us couldn't even consider you know yeah. um if you think about a song from under the floorboards i am angry i am ill and i'm as ugly as sin my irritability keeps me alive and kicking this is a song from under that is the opening line of the idiot in, in yes. dostoevsky yes i mean it's incredible this guy took yes. that and just boom into a song isn't that I mean, amazing? You know, it's incredible. What a lyricist. Yeah. And, um, yes. and, the, and the lyrics in The Light Pulls At Me are, like I say, you know, to me, they just redefined the game and yeah. made, made us sit back and go, wait a minute, we're not good enough. We need yeah. to be better because yeah. these guys are so good yeah. that we need to be at their level. Okay. Yeah. We'll never, we never got to their level, but we need to push it. And we did. Well, yes. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, because I have a lot of questions about Days of Europe, Europa specifically here in a second, but so let's put a pin in that because I got I want to pile on that a little bit more. You've mentioned about your love of the Clash. You do this version of Complete Control that is amazing on here. Oh, have we done something wrong? 
I'm guessing that's your way of saying, you know, thanks for coming and playing when we asked you to and inspiring us the way that you did. Clash were, I mean, talk about bands that elevated punk rock and went somewhere else and did yeah, things I mean, more. Yeah, I mean, the first album is just still masterful. I mean, it's great because I can hear it because my son is a, you know, the, the, we were very tribal in our tastes. His generation, he's in his 20s, much more eclectic. You know, they're listening yeah. to classical music, then they're listening to, you know, Led Zeppelin, and then they're listening to The Clash. You know, they, they don't, they're not tribal about this. In fact, I saw a guy with a, with a, a Emerson Lake and Palmer album, he was the enemy. If I saw somebody with a Genesis album, you know, let's get your fists out, pal. We've got to right. fight. Yeah, so yeah. it was a different thing, you know. But I, I listened to a lot of this music that I grew up and was part of my life through his, his ears and eyes now. And it's pretty magic because he loves it. And he's gone, what, what's he singing about? Tell me what the story is here. And, and you know, The Clash just, in the sense of, I mean, the, the Pistols were nihilistic. You know, it was a nihilistic band. Great songs. I love the songs. Mm-hmm. But they were nihilists. The Clash were the ones who, they were kind of, it was like agiprop. They were suddenly, we've got to use this as a platform to speak about stuff rather than yeah. kind of hide behind the, yeah. the, the kind of anti-rock and roll thing that everyone's gone on about. Right. Or, or the Sex Pistols nihilism. We've got to use it. And I think um, certainly at the beginning, a lot of our lyrics were deeply politicised. Mm-hmm. Even Charles, you know, one of our first ever songs was about kind of automation and and the the working man being redundant. obsolete and uh, we moved on from that commenting on the world around us but when when we start to use more of my lyrics I think they are political working for the Yankee dollar is obviously political
but in a different way, you know, and yeah. um, they became much grander in their ambition, you know, and, and maybe much more generalised rather than talking about specific politics. You took some heat for that. You've taken some heat over the years, my understanding anyway, is that people were a little unsure of where you were even coming from politically. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I think, um, well, we've always been, you know, people of the left. Uh-huh. But um, Days in Europa confused people because of the sleeve. Yeah. Um, it didn't really confuse, confuse people. It confused some critics. I might add, just... There's this myth that Disney Europa was banned as an album because of the sleeve having some kind of fascistic uh, intent, which is rubbish, and it never was. There's two mixes of Disney Europa. There's the original mix by Bill Nelson, and there's a second mix because Virgin, our record label, did not like the mix, and they thought it wasn't suitable for the American market. So we did a Uh second mix, but on the agreement that the first would always be available in its original sleeve, and the second would be available in a different sleeve. So the two of them were always available. So the idea that one was taken away because of the sleeve is complete and utter bullshit. And, um, you know, you I mentioned, I, I, I believe, Bruce Fairbairn did the second. Mix, he did, yes. Right? He did a really. He went on to be a legend with like the 80s hair metal guys. Indeed. And he did a good job of pushing because Bill Nelson was more interested in keyboards than guitar, even though he was a guitar hero himself. The, the producer of the album, and he um, he just buried the guitar. So Bruce did the opposite. So there's two versions of that album. And, and but but what's interesting to me in retrospect is that some of the journalists who attacked me without really much consequence are the very same people who were writing incredible things about Joy Division. And I was going like, well, well, we use the sleeve because the original title of the album was going to be the Olympian. Uh. And so that's why we use that sleeve, and the, one of the main tracks from the album is, of course, the Olympian. They never even blinked about Joy Division. I mean, that that is the most fascistic, fetishistic name I've ever heard in my life. Right. And if you and if you examine it further, Joy Division's booking agent were called Final Solution, and uh-huh. they went on to become New Order. 
I mean, yeah. hello. Yeah. yeah. You know, is there a little kind of right. chain of events here? Yeah. Like, you know, kind of slightly have a bad taste. Yeah. Um, so the idea, and, and weirdly enough, I've just written a book about that period of my life because I lived in Berlin for six months at that mm. period. And uh, I lived with a German girl in Berlin. And she used to work in a place called the Europa Center mm. in the center of Berlin. She translated from Russian to German and German to Russian for a law company. And I used to go and meet her. And the title of the album at the time, because I'd left the UK and I was living there and it hadn't come out, was The Olympian. And then I found this poster when I was in Berlin of the Berlin Olympics from 1936. Mm -hmm. And every day she'd say, oh, my God, you wait for me to come from work every day, another day in Europa, because it was the Europa Centre. And I thought, "Ah, that's (laughs) the title. So a day in Europa. Yeah. To me, because my girlfriend committed suicide when I lived there. So it was oh, all ended tragically. So, so the title album means a lot to me, you know, yeah. and and it was her that found the poster. It was her idea that we should use that. And she's a genuine Berliner. So, you know, so it it, it became a whole lot of shit about nothing. But these mm-hmm. things kind of still hang around you. Do you know what I mean? You go like, what yeah. the hell? I mean, this yeah. Is, doesn't make yeah. any when sense. When you do research for you like I was doing <laughs> You learn about all this stuff that's going on that you're not aware of, and um, yeah. Well, I've never read my, um, I've never read Wikipedia or any of those things, but I dread to think what's in there. But what the hell? <laughs> um, okay, so tell me about Rock On. That's that song when compared to everything else on there is a bit of an outlier, but um, you explain in the liner notes why you picked it, and in the song itself, you do one of your kind of spoken word things about gang warfare going on during a David Essex concert, right? Tell us <laughs> well, the story. Sure, uh, well, in, in the Kinema Ballroom on a Friday and Saturday was a what became known as a disco, yeah, uh, and it was a club for. And working men in the area we came from were quite tough guys and quite macho. And all these young men would come to this club, which opened at 10 o'clock and finished at 2 a.m. And 
Some would go just to meet girls, uh, but a lot of them came to meet the other gangs that were coming into town. And it was really, uh, had a kind of pretty violent interface, this place. But but the king of the gangs was a gang called the A.V. Toy. A.V. stands for Abbey View, which was a district uh, outside Dunfermline, which was uh, like a housing project kind of area. Yeah. Pretty tough, crazy guys came out of there. And they were notorious all over Scotland, this gang. And uh, But they came from there. Uh, I was lucky because two of them absolutely loved what we were doing with the skids. Yeah. Yeah. So they were cool with me always. Yeah. So um, we, we never had any trouble with them. And quite actually, they started to look after us when trouble kicked off. But these guys were pretty scary. And, and they had their own code. And in the club, if something was going on, it was... The their cue was the David Essex song, so they would go to the DJ and say, "Put the rock oh, on," and the DJ would go, "He would be too scared to say no to these guys, right?" So, right. and the, and the the security people were like, hey, "I can get involved in this shit," right? And they would say, "Play rock on," and that was the theme was for some shit was going to happen. So the ones who understood the code, you knew just to make yourself scarce or hide, yeah. Because you knew something, or or find a good place, vantage point to watch, because wow. some shit was going to kick off, and it yeah. was always because they would all sing it together, which was frightening. They would all just uh-huh. go rock on, yeah. and it's like whoa, you know, oh, hairs no. on the back yeah. of the neck, terror though, pure terror. Yes. I believe it. Yeah, oh, that so, kinda... that, so the song in that sense is uh, kind of got some historical context for us with the kinema, but uh-huh. it's also a great song. Yeah, it's a great song. Oh yeah, it is. David Essex was a good songwriter, but because he was so goddamn good looking <laughs> that, that he became a teeny bopper. Uh-huh. He, he was always more interesting than that. Because if you look at the movies, That'll Be the Day and Stardust, he's pretty good in those movies. Yeah. Yeah. Quite genuine. Yes. But he's just so good looking. Yeah. I mean, if you meet him in, like, I've met him many times and he's a nice guy, but he's so, like, fucking handsome, this guy. Is he? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, even dead. still, walks into a room and Gerald's just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so I think his career, if, if if such a thing can be true, his career suffered because of that. You know, because people didn't take him seriously because right. yeah. he was just, you know, he looked like you he mentioned looked, David Cassidy. He fought that too because most of his life, you indeed, know, gets indeed. put in a box of being a teeny bopper when he wants to be a more serious musician and they won't allow it. You know, guy, this good looking, we we can't. You can't be an artist. You're not supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, if you think of the Rolling Stones, I mean, they're all pretty ugly, but Brian Jones wasn't. Brian Jones was, like, a serious-looking dude. And then he's gone, and then, you know, I mean, rock and roll people are not (laughs) good-looking. You know, they're all kind of a bit... I mean, think of David Bowie. I mean, Eggie Pop's hardly good-looking. I mean, he's... (laughs) But he's amazing. Do you know right, what I mean? Right. Yeah, of course. And, of course. Uh, so I think you, the, the way the world works is you get pushed into that yeah. corner. And but anyway, the song beyond that, it's a good song, and and we thought we'll give it a go. Yeah. And and it came out okay. You know, it came out yeah. okay. So we it's we good. said it's going in there. Good. It's great. It deserves it. Okay, let's talk about Stuart for a minute. You know, big country are much beloved, and uh, I still, in fact, it was. Stu Stewart's suicide that partly inspired me to even start this podcast six years ago because my fear was that if people that I, if artists that I love so deeply don't feel loved or don't know that they're loved, if I could have the chance to tell them that 
maybe that would make a difference. And so I sought out people, artists that I love that I want to be able to tell them that just in case. Yeah. Did you stay close to Stuart? I mean, were you guys friendly uh, to it all or what? No. No. no, because when it, Stuart was dark, you know, he had a lot of strange stuff going on in his life. I wrote a song about him called Off One Skin. It's on the first um, schism. got really drunk one time and he told me some stuff you know about his really? family life and pretty shocking and it, was, and it was about stuff that people didn't really know about then you know about sexual abuse and that kind of thing right. and so he kind of introduced me to some dark stuff in his world and uh, you know I kept that close but I wrote I remember writing off one skin about in my own elliptical, fairly abstract way. Yeah. But he was problematic in that he, we were becoming incredibly successful and we were just about to come to North America, you know, mm -hmm. Canada, the US and then Canada. And we were pretty excited and we were getting ready to just go and play small clubs, obviously, but so what? You know, just we were really yeah. excited about that. And in the UK, we were at our peak. Yeah. And he decided to call it a day. You know, it's like he kept on vanishing, you know. And then he started working on a new record and he didn't Let me really ask you, like did he call it a day like I don't want to be a rock star anymore? Or did he call it a day and then I want to go do something else like big country? Well, no, he called it a day pretty much every week. He didn't want to be in a band anymore. He wanted to, he was also a bit of a homeboy. He wanted, I mean, Stuart wanted all the things that I didn't want. He wanted a mortgage, a wife. And children yeah. and and security. I don't want any of that. Uh -huh. And we were very different. I mean, I had a condition and still have it's epilepsy. And when you have that condition, you start to feel your days are numbered. You're not going to be around for long. And uh -huh. and you know, when you're young, you don't you're not afraid of that. You know, you just think, well, and so I used to watch like how Iggy was doing his thing and, and just think, you know what? Every time I go on stage, it's got to be like, it's the last time. Yeah. And that's why suddenly, as a young 17-year-old, I was living in Berlin. Mm -hmm. Sure, wouldn't have dreamed of doing any of those things. Mm -hmm. He wanted to go straight back to Dunfermline. He was living above a chip shop with his 
girlfriend who had become his wife and the mother of his children, and he, and he wanted a car and all that shit. Yeah. I want to go to Berlin. I want to go to Brussels. I want to go to Paris. I want to go to Los Angeles and, yeah. you know, all these crazy places that I've been reading about. And, and yeah. he wanted to be at home all the time. So, so we were pulling in different directions, you know, all the time. And I think he found me very difficult, but he understood that I was trying to squeeze every drop of juice yeah. out of yeah. my very yeah. short time on this planet. Yeah. Whereas he had a longer view of it, and he yeah. was a songwriter, which I didn't regard myself. So I was a performer, more like an actor. So there's a big difference. And it's weird. I'm still here, and he's gone. It's not and, and the booze thing with him, I, I don't really see that, because we were never like that. Because um, because of my condition, I didn't really. I kept, I've always kept myself pretty fit. Uh-huh. And, of course, we would have a beer or something, you know, like right. normal. Right. But I, I don't think you'll ever meet anybody who can say to you, I remember this kid's being on stage drunk. Impossible. Mm. Uh, and um, Or I remember being in a club and the kids were really drunk and off their face on cocaine and booze or heroin yeah. or something. It's just it's unthinkable. Not, it wasn't it just guys. wasn't our thing. Yeah. I mean, we, we liked to laugh and we were serious about stuff, sure. you know. We were, we were well-read and, and we cared about other people. But um, the booze thing, uh, so when I saw a shoot a couple of times with BC because my ex-wife used to do the press which was difficult for me because she'd come back and go oh hey it's bc are releasing their first single i went great i'm excited i heard it it's pretty good i went like in the top five she said, she said are you okay about that I went, yeah it's yeah. great yeah. and then their album came out she said oh my god it's gone in at number one are you cool about that i go uh-huh. yeah i love it <laughs> Oh, yeah, they've just been invited on David Bowie's tour. Are you okay about it? Oh, yeah, I'm fucking okay about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I was totally pleased about his success because right. I'm not that type of person. You know, like I said mm-hmm. to you earlier, I never saw rock and roll as being competitive. It's yeah. not a sport. Right. It's a cultural thing, you know. It's right. uh, much more important than sport. Yeah. So I, I, I was pleased about his success. Although I did find the music eventually became a little derivative, personally. Yeah, the kind of stuff that Stuart was singing about was very romantic. Yeah, in a kind of melancholy way. Mm-hmm. Whereas my stuff is a little bit more. If you think of what I went on to do with the Armory Show, it's much more. It's colder, yes. more direct, and it's kind of got a different kind of art to it. So we were very different, but nonetheless, I supported him. But but we had already drifted. Yeah, you know, okay. He was gone that way, and uh, I had gone my way, and. By the time I got back to when we started working on Absolute Game, because I came back from Berlin to work on that album, I wasn't in a good place anyway because of the suicide of my girlfriend. So I was in a fairly difficult place, and we'd made a good album with the Absolute Game. I mean, I think yeah. most people think it's the best Skids album. I don't, but most people do. And we should have been soaring into the gods. Weirdly enough, the sound that I wanted us to make to focus on his guitar playing was exactly the sound he created on the first big country It's interesting you say that because when I go back and listen to Absolute Game, there's a couple of songs on there, for instance, like One Decree.
would that sound to me like the beginning of what big country would become? Yeah, those sort so. of that sort of Ebo, you know, uh, backpipe sound that's coming yeah, from the I guitar. Mean, yeah, I mean, you can see it in a lot of Skid songs, really, the way yeah. he plays the guitar. But certainly, in Absolute Game, I think um, Home of the Save that and many yeah. others is definitely the beginning of what he went on to do. But but the sound that we, we went on to do a very dysfunctional record called Joy without him and it's it just doesn't work because Stuart's no. not on it. There's no guitar on it, and um, the production's terrible, and it's just not a good album. It's got moments that are okay, but it's just yeah. not consistent for obvious reasons. Sure, it's not on it. Uh, sure. But the, the guitar that should have been on that album is exactly the guitar that he took into Interesting. the first big country album. I mean, it's just it doesn't matter. That's you know, yeah. life and fate, you know. Right. Um, so I'm curious then too. You, I, I know you said rock isn't competitive, but Armory Show, first of all. That album is so amazing, and I'm so sad that there's only one of them. But I wondered if your sound, the sound that you're adapting with Armory Show, is a response in some ways to the sound that he was bringing on with Big Country, or are they not not connected at all? I don't think they're connected. No, I think okay. um, when I started working with John McGeeck, my lyrics have always been a little, as I said earlier, a little elliptical and mm -hmm. abstract. John McGeeck just got it. It was like, it was like a bit of a Cinderella moment, you know. The the fruit just faded into that glass shoe, and it was like. Yeah. So I gave him the words to say castles in Spain and.
and they said, yeah, let me think about it. I really like these words. And they were, you know, they're, they're, they're very strange words. Right. And they're a bit kind of, I don't know, I think I just read Cervantes, Don Quixote, and they've got that kind of element in them, and that's where the, the castles in Spain element okay. came from. Okay. Castles in Spain in, in the UK means the same as castles in the air, uh-huh. uh, and probably American culture. Yeah. So there was a little bit of that going on, and, and but John was a very literary guy, you know, and, and he was a great, he was a great painter as well as a great mm. guitarist. And he just got it, and suddenly he came back with that, Bam, 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 bam. I went, holy shit. Yes. And um, I had met this guy called Peter Mensch, this very famous American manager who managed at the time Metallica and mm-hmm. Def Leppard, amongst many other bands who were huge at that time, mm-hmm. you know, really huge bands. But they were all off the metal persuasion. Mm-hmm. And he he loved these British and Irish rock and roll bands. So he thought Armory Show were going to be the new U2. Mm-hmm. And, and you two are, have a warmth, the early stuff at least, has this, it's very warm and, and very romantic, a bit like big country, but even though the music's very different, they have a, a romance in there. Whereas I think the Armory show is a bit more cold, you know, and a bit yeah. a slightly more industrial and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, not nihilistic because I really don't approve of that, but it just had a different thing and a, a different sound. And we were trying to create a very specific sound for us. And I think two things, really. If you imagine the bands at the time that were successful, U2, as I've just mentioned, uh-huh. and BC, there's a warmth to their music, and, and yeah. it's, it's very reassuring, mm-hmm. both bands. Words, it's music yeah. that, that makes you feel good about something. Mm-hmm. And whereas the Armory Show music doesn't make you feel good, but makes you maybe feel slightly mm-hmm. uncomfortable. And and I think we were just making the the right music at the wrong time. And really? if we had been making that music maybe two years after that, or we had just stuck with it, it would have worked. Well, that but, was my but, question. Why is there only the one album? You guys couldn't oh, keep it it's together? Impatience. I mean, you know, we live in a world where people and music was it was already happening, this new thing of whereas with Virgin with the skids. They were patient, uh-huh. whereas uh, music, the, the, the rewards were so huge that with the Armory show, EMI America signed us. We didn't get a deal in the UK. It was an okay. American EMI that signed us. And unfortunately, the guy, the guy that set, um, signed us, Gary Gersh, left the day after signing us to go to, I forget the label he went to. They all do that. And, and suddenly okay. we, we didn't have anybody to look after us. We yeah. were just this anomaly. Mm-hmm. And at the time, they were working with Red Hot Chili Peppers who were just breaking out and, yeah. and they didn't know what to do with us. So they yeah. kind of threw us back to the UK and they didn't know what to do with us because they didn't yeah. sign us and they didn't really want to sign us. So yeah. we were just stuck in aspic. Uh-huh. Peter thought it'd be a success immediately and, um, and his partner thought the same. And it didn't. It yeah. wasn't a success. Uh-huh. Uh, it was creatively, but not... Uh, not commercially so they just dropped it and and also so did the record label and John McGeeck had had enormous success with Susie and the Banshees mm-hmm. I mean financial success okay. as well as he had no financial success with magazine but right. loads of he made a lot of money with the Banshees and then he made he was with Visage and he made a lot of money with Visage and he was the most sought after guitar player in kind of Europe in Europe yeah 
And everybody wanted to work with this guy. And suddenly John Lydon from Pill said, you know, Keith Levine's a disaster. You know, you're the greatest guitar player of your generation. And I remember John phoned me up. She said, you're not going to like this, but Lydon's called me up. I said, he's a fucking disgusting asshole. We care about him phoning you up. I don't like John. I mean, I love Steve and Paul and right. I like Fid, but I don't like John. Oh. And uh, he said, well, you know, it's like if 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 Mick Jagger called me up and said, you want to join the Stones? And I was like, mm-hmm. ah, come on, man. So he went off and joined Pill. But that was to do with yeah. it. And in my opinion, it was patience. He didn't have the patience. Yeah. Because John, with the Banshees, with Visage, and now with Pill, was playing massive stadiums, was yeah. playing big auditoriums. You want to start over. And, and we were in tour in Europe and we went to Scandinavia and it was great. And we got to Germany and nobody cared. Mm. We were playing like small 500 seater places with yeah. only 150 people there. Yeah. And he'd been used to playing full uh, venues. So had I with the skins, of sure. course. But I, I was prepared to get down and get dirty and get my. Yeah. You know, yeah. Kind of, but he wasn't, unfortunately. No. You can see that. That makes sense. Yeah, once you've had that kind of a uh, uh, success and that you, I mean, it sounds almost, I, he was, he did come into those bands. They weren't, you know, stadium fillers necessarily when he joined, but he saw immediate success. It would be difficult for anybody to start fresh with a whole new project, even though you're known entities, say yeah. we're going to kick this thing off from the beginning and see where it goes. If you've got the means or the ability to go, join some bigger band and keep the gravy train going, why wouldn't you? Yeah, you know? well, I guess, I mean, you know, it's to do with commitment, isn't it? And yeah. he wasn't committed to it. He was Makes committed. Sense. John had got into the trinklets, you know, of mm-hmm. the success. So he had a nice car, he had a motorcycle. He could do, he could buy anything he wanted, whereas we were still yeah. living pretty much, you know, um, day by day, yeah. hand to mouth. He had all the toys and, and he wanted all of that. And, and he also expected the Armory Show to be an instantaneous success. Mm-hmm. He didn't think it was going to be like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and so, you know, when you've got Peter Mensch as your manager, when you've got EMI America, the biggest record company in the world behind you, allegedly, yeah. and you've got guys who have been in very successful bands, the equation was all there, really, for it to be successful. But unfortunately, it just wasn't. It just yeah. wasn't successful. Yeah, and so I think that affected him pretty badly. But at the same time, just to get this clear, John had been fired from the Banshees because he was drinking uh, obscene amounts of booze and taking abhorrent amounts of cocaine. Okay. And and he was still doing the same when he was in the armory show. He was a train crash. Yeah. I remember going to see him um, about six months later when they were playing with Pill in Glasgow and he was a disaster. I mean, really? Is that what eventually did him in? I can't remember. Did he die of drugs ultimately or some result? Uh, I think um, it was later on, but I think his kidneys, I think, uh, was something related probably to. Probably from all of so, that. No, it was all related. There's no, yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. It was, you know, okay. it was sad. It's sad because he was a, because, you know, all of this can never take away from the fact he was a really nice guy. And, mm. and he's one of the few people I've ever met in kind of the bands that are circle that I moved in, you could talk about any book or painting or movie and he was there for it. Yeah. Yeah. Just listening to Steve and listening to Peter and listening to Paul and 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 Paul and
I did want to ask you, we, you know, we cover sensitively on here, uh, the business side of things. And I'm curious what the, you know, so the saints are coming, gets reimagined by you two and green day. They kick off the NFL season, uh, in new Orleans. You've, I'm sure you know about this. I'm reciting it for anyone who doesn't. There is a house in New Orleans They call the Superdome ruin Many a poor boy And God, I know I'm one Proud to my daddy can't remember what year that was but whatever it was it was after hurricane katrina 2007 maybe when um the dome that the team plays in the new orleans saints is damaged but when the when the football season starts and everything's been fixed and is back to normal they kick off the nfl season singing that song what was that like for you that had to have been the highest profile thing that it happened to the skids or you in a long time in America, anyway. And well, the skids, were, the skids were the skids didn't exist. I mean, right. I, mean I when I left the skids and um, to go on and start with the Armory show, I, I never returned to the skids. I didn't ever play any of the songs. I mean, people would ask me about it. I just dismiss it. You know, I didn't want to talk about it. It was just a period of history that I wasn't interested in. And um, in some ways, I almost felt like I was embarrassed about it. I don't know why. And then um, out of the blue, I get a phone call from The Edge saying, would you come down to Abbey Road Studios, the famous Abbey Road Studios in London tonight? Because we're in here with the guys from Green Day and Rick Rubens producing. And I was going like, well, well why? <laughs> yeah, sure, but why? Because, because we're, we're, we're doing the sense of coming. And we want to change one line in the song and we want you to come down and approve that change of that line. And so I jumped on a train. I'm only half an hour from London uh-huh. and got into uh, Abbey Road. And um, and sure enough, everywhere. It was, it was the main Abbey Road studio, the famous one, where the Beatles mm-hmm. recorded everything. And it's a strange, slightly antiquated space. But, of course, uh-huh. they've kept it as it was because of the 
you know, the kind of legendary, iconic meaning sure. of the space. And there they all were, like Green Day and U2 in the same room. And these are the two biggest rock and roll bands on the planet yes, at the time. And, and Rick Rubin's a big guy, you know, he's uh-huh. kind of... And uh, Anton Corbin was there filming. He was doing a behind-the-scenes film about the whole thing that was, like, slightly overwhelming, the whole thing. And Bono asked me about the line. I was completely relaxed about that. And um, we talked about it was going to be a charity record. You know, all the money was going to go to the kids in New Orleans who lost their money, lost their musical instruments during uh, the horrors of Hurricane Katrina. And um, there was going to be a sensational video. They told me what the video was going to be like, and the video was amazing. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing video. But I remember uh, I got a link to watch the – I had no idea that Monday night American football, the relaunch, is like the biggest night in the calendar. Okay. I had no idea about any of these cultural things. Yeah. And secondly, because of where it was situated in the dome in New Orleans – and the, the story of what happened there, it had a bigger audience than ever. So yes. I, I, they say at the time it was the biggest television audience in American history, maybe uh, the world. Yeah. And American football gets is the highest rated thing on American television. And big so, events and, like and, that, Super Bowl, kickoffs. Yeah, so this, this particular event was so huge because it caught everybody's imagination. And yeah. the fact that you two and Green Day were on stage together yeah. probably added to that excitement and and then yeah then started singing this song i was like holy shit yeah this is, this is something you know and yeah. um i believe the new orleans saints still use it to come out to really oh that's great yeah it's a it's a weird sense of coming is used by various football teams here in the uk mm-hmm. and uh it's quite something these these the legacy of stuff you know but, yeah. I mean, as I say, suddenly people were interested in who the skids were. Mm-hmm. And so we were asked if we would do a one-off small 40 minutes at a big festival in uh, Scotland supporting Arcade Fire Ooh, uh, nice. at Team the Park. And, and and we thought, well, we'll probably get bottled off stage. You know, I think uh-huh. we, but it was maybe we went out of 60,000 people singing along with us. So nice. it was pretty amazing. And then and then fun that people can come on and do. And I don't really want to become because there, there is in the um, UK a, a kind of heritage trail nostalgia thing going on mm-hmm. with a lot of mm-hmm. bands from our era. And I've been sure. to see some of them because I love the music and I love those yeah. bands. And I've got to say, I wasn't very impressed. Oh. You know, a lot of these bands just are turning up and it's about yeah. money. It's not yeah. about performing and stuff. So I say, I don't want to be part of that because that's ripping people off. And then my friend Youth, uh, from Killing Joke. The He's been on the show. I interviewed yeah, him a few well, months ago. He's an amazing uh, guy, and he encouraged yeah. me to write some songs with him in the style of the Skids, and then work with some other people, which I did. And suddenly we had a new album. Is that Burning Cities? Burning Cities, and so good. Yeah.
youth produced it and gave it this energy. Did he? And, I didn't know that. And the four of the songs on it are his. So nice. we, we did this record and suddenly I had, if we were going to go out and do a few shows, at least we had, we were, yeah. at least in my mind, at least we, right. we were, we, we had a kind of, we were yeah. relevant rather yes. than irrelevant. And, and yes. I couldn't bear the idea of just going out and exploiting a fan base for, for just, yeah. you know, for playing the greatest hits thing. So yeah, I and your album was really good. Yes. You did an incredible job and, and people really liked it. And, and, and it was a success here in the UK. I mean, we went, we did really well with it. Good. And so we went out and played and, and suddenly it was like a duck to water. I just loved yeah. being out. And also, as you could probably tell from this, I like to talk. Uh-huh. And, um, and I like well, to talk. It, it gets to you audience. reconnected with your audience, right? Yeah, but I like to talk to them and tell them stories. And, yeah. And, and they really liked that. Because as I say, a lot of the other bands just turn up, play the songs and get the hell out of there as soon yeah. as they can. Yeah. And uh, we, we just weren't like that. I remember going to see the Buzzcocks when Pete Shadow was still alive, and they never said a single thing to anybody. No. They just no. wanted the money. And, and then I found that later they had on their writer, it says, no Moe, no Shoei, no Shandon, no Bandon. So well, Moe, Shandon, the Champagne. In fact, we're, really? We're from the punk generation. What the hell is this? <laughs> So, um, so it, you know, I found my own way back into it, which is important to me. And I think yeah. people come to see us like the banter and the conversation and yeah. the jokes and the taking the piss out of ourselves and the serious stuff, you know. So yeah. it seems to have worked. Good. Okay, I got one last question. We haven't even gotten to your post-skids career, TV presenting, movie critic, but your spoken word career You master me, O etiquette. You can for me, abstain for me, because I shall always do nothing, do nothing for thee, O etiquette. You should never have called me ugly, ugly, ugly. You should never have called me ugly, ugly. You should never have called me ugly, ugly. I've listened to it, but I, I lean toward the skids more than I do the the poetry reading. No offense or anything. It's just, um, but I, I am curious what led you to go down that road. And secondly, a former guest of ours is a guy named Alan Edmonds, who was in a group called um, uh, Mulu. And he's a huge KTP fan, um, Kissing the Pink. And I guess um, my understanding is that the members of Kissing the Pink, their first thing they ever did was be your backing band. That's right. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, Virginia Ashley. Um, we used to do a, a, an event in London at um, in this, right in the centre of London in the old Latin Quarter, and um, it was a kind of uh, an amalgam of different kind of creative people doing some crazy shit. Oh. And I, I would stand up each week and and find a poem and extrapolate it into some kind of performance. Yeah. And it was kind of a bit dada, the whole thing, and a bit mad. 
Uh, and I started off with Sylvia Plath's daddy and turned it into a kind of almost like a, uh, a crazy one-man performance. But then suddenly I had um, these amazing musicians behind me playing this beautiful music. And, um, uh, you know, because of the influence of my travels in Germany and Belgium and Brussels, started to evolve it into other things. And, you know, I just decided to do this label in Brussels called Kreppeskul, asked me to make some spoken word records, and I did. And to yeah. me, there were things that I loved doing. You don't do that to make money. You do that because you just want to do it. And right. I think I said right at the outset of our conversation, my attitude to creativity is very scattergun. You know, I try lots of different things. I don't care what the critical fraternity think about it. I'm not, I'm not doing Good. it for them. Good. First of all, I'm kind of doing it for myself. Yeah, and then and then if I think if it's if I think it's any good, I'll share it. If I think it's really truly appalling, then I might just bin it. And I, I, a few of them have slipped out, um, <laughs> but but you know I've, I've no shame in that. I, I mean, at least yeah. I, at least I'm trying to do stuff still, you know. Yeah. So yeah, for sure, um, and and not be repetitive. So that's kind of really where that came from, and they were amazing. I mean, the people I worked with on those records were amazing, like Billy yes. Riley, you know. Yes. And, uh, uh, and you know we we did some great stuff, and you know it's you you need Kahuna's to stand up in front of a big audience and do that stuff, you know, because yes, you immediately um, start throwing stuff at you, you know. Yes, and, uh, I can imagine. So, so it can become <laughs> difficult. I can imagine. But, I, but that gave me the confidence to go on and even take as a front person, yeah. be very relaxed. Because as I say, I watch a lot of people trying to communicate with an audience, and that. They just don't do it. You know, they're yeah. not really interested. The skids were famous for supporting the clash. And then Joe Strummer said to me, and then we came on and I noticed the two guys down the front was Jobson and Adamson. <laughs> and um, the buscock said the same thing. You know, you'd be supporting them. And then yeah. they looked down the front, the two guys down the front, when, when they came on later, Jobson yeah. and Adamson. And every band we played with, like the Stranglers, we toured with the Stranglers for two years nearly. Wow. Hugh Cornwell, who still I would regard as a dear friend, uh-uh. would say, my God, you guys just did a gig and and then, you know, yeah, you were done. Wow. Until the day when Hugh got put in jail for having some, got caught with some drugs, I had to do the skids for 45 minutes, have a 10-minute break, then come back on and do his part. Really? <laughs> yeah, which was great. Great. Yeah, I loved that. And uh, being Hugh Cornwall for a day was yeah, but... uh, pretty exciting, I've got to tell oh. you. But, okay. uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, the, the stories I could tell you, really, uh, yeah. maybe for another time. Well, I love it. I um, This is exactly the kind of conversation you want to have with a musician that you love, to not just discuss the inner workings of their music, but just to talk about music in general, what it means to you, the stories behind it, the stories of the people you know and have worked with. It's gold. Thank you, Richard, for, ta- for talking oh, It's been a me. pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. I mean, I could talk to you for hours and hours. You're very good Same. at it. Same. Very well, thank you. It, so. All right. There you have it, Richard Jobson. Wasn't that fun? I love that. Of course, I could talk punk rock with anyone for hours, and he can too. And just all the interesting stuff he's done and all that great music. As I said, I wanted to close it out with New York Groove because who would have guessed that he would co- that their band would cover that song, but they do it so well. Now, I want to tell you, I have since made contact with Alan McGee and he's coming on the podcast, but I'm going to watch Creation Stories first 
So if you go on to the Tribeca Film Festival website and search for creation stories, you can buy a ticket and it streams for the next week. That's what I'm going to do. And as soon as I see it and I get my notes and everything together, I'm going to reach back out to Alan and we're going to do an interview. He's already agreed to come on. Now, another big thing. I have a spare copy of Songs from a Haunted Ballroom to give away to a special listener for free. All you have to do is go sign up for our first tier Patreon. Okay? So it's two bucks a month. As I've always said, it puts you in the running to win any and all swag we ever have to give away. I have a copy of it. I will be announcing on, or I'll post it on Patreon tomorrow, which is Wednesday, and I will announce the winner this Sunday. And so if you want to be in the running, get on Patreon, become a tier one member. You may get picked. If you want the CD, you can tell me. Now, next week we have, we're finally going to talk to a female. My gosh, we've gone all year without any women. Thankfully, I've got like four or five interviews with women in the can that are coming up. But here's our first. She was a backup singer for years. Big name backup singer. In the early 90s, she formed, she became a member of a band, a group that had a worldwide number one song that she sang and co-wrote. That's probably how you best know her, even though her career goes back 50 years, 45 years, something like that. Anyway, it's great. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for everything. Thank you, buddy. Guys, find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod, and we should have a bonus episode coming out this weekend. Thanks, everybody. We love you.